are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Marcia LaRose at 4 Agency Worldwide. Marcia is also co-founder of Ageless Teenagers, a community-based organization tackling loneliness and isolation. Good morning, uh, Marcia. Wonderful to have you on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. I am tuning in from Gurgaon in India. So it's afternoon here. Great stuff. Brilliant. I'm in London, so it's morning here. So to get started, give us a quick introduction to who you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm Marcia LaRose. I am the head of HR at Four Agency Worldwide. I've been at Four for 20 years now. I'm actually an accountant. So when I joined Four, I was their accountant. Well, I was the whole finance team. And the company was very small then, maybe 15 employees. So at that point, it was quite manageable to look after suppliers and clients and paying staff and the like. So that was all absolutely fine. But as the business grew, it was found that I had particularly good people skills by others, I must add. And so I moved into HR and I've been in HR probably now for about 12 or 15 years. And I still look after a lot of things to do with money. So I work really closely with the group finance director and I still look after the salaries and tax issues, student loan issues, those sorts of things. Aside from that, I was heavily involved in for acquiring its B Corp status and I actively work to ensure we are continually improving on that. And separately, again, I am a fellow at the PRCA and I am an immigration advisor at the Home Office. So that's what I do. Oh, my God. Wow. (laughs) You definitely have your plate full. (laughs) Yeah, I like to be kept busy. Keep me out of trouble, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So as a woman leader from the global majority, how easy or difficult has career progression been for you? From the sound of it, it looks like you managed to find some good people along the way or? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't necessarily easy, but I know I've been lucky, which isn't how it's actually supposed to be. It should be fact, not luck. Many, many years ago, when my daughter first started school, she's now 28. So many years ago, I was able to work from home due to childcare issues that I had. And I was only actually able to do that because my employer at the time was a progressive thinker. And I just don't think there's many of those people I just don't think they were around at that point. That was the luck part. And that person, Nan Williams, is uh, the chief executive of the company I currently work at and have been working at for for 20 years. And she knew the value of working mums, which I think is missed by many businesses. I think that's a a big group that lots of businesses ignore. Yeah, my kids were 
probably of a similar age and younger age. And I remember really struggling and having to step back a couple of times in order to be able to juggle home and work. And work often I had to sacrifice to stop working to be able to look after. And also you mentioned that you moved from being an accountant to being a people person. Yes. So, I mean, the central service functions are always quite interlinked. I haven't got any particularly strong IT skills, so I won't claim anything there. But (laughs) I think the group finance director myself, Patrick Walk, we work very closely. I've literally just come off of a call with him and we have maybe three or four calls a day when we're not in the office together. We work very closely to make sure everything's going well across the business. And because I've already got the financial background, it's easy for Patrick to speak to me in ways that maybe it wouldn't be for others. So it's just the way it's gone, really. So yeah, again, um, luck. Uh, Yeah, and that shouldn't be the case. But but thank God for that. What would you say are your biggest learnings from that journey? Something that you can share with aspiring women leaders, especially from the global majority, Black and ethnic minority? Yeah, I think one of the biggest learnings for me, and because I experienced it, was not to judge others for their lifestyle choices. So I know in the past that I was judged because I was a black single mother and people had their own preconception of what that looks like and what that would, would be. And I think although I have been able to carve a pathway it has hindered me in other ways other opportunities at other organizations yeah that's very unfortunate and I can imagine at that time especially nobody even thought about how it was impacting uh, no if I tell you a really bizarre story I remember working somewhere and I had to drop my daughters to school before I came to the office and then there was something happened on the tubes and it everything went wrong and I was hurtling up the escalators at a tube station and broke my toe on the escalator groove oh my god and that was the turning point for me where I I'd sort of mentally said to myself I'm gonna just take it easy when I get there is when I get there rather than break my neck literally to try and get to work and I think a lot of working parents go through a similar type of epiphany, I suppose, where they get to a point where they say, look, X is more important than Y. Yeah, it can be so traumatizing, this whole uh, thing. Uh, Absolutely. So you've been around for some time. Uh, Has the role of HR transformed in the past couple of years? And what, according to you, are the biggest challenges and opportunities? Not trend, I wouldn't say trend, because everyone is doing it, I'll do it. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses would have found that one of the largest opportunities has been the ability to hire talent from all over the country slash world. Yeah. Uh, the ability to do that has given a lot of businesses a step forward. Where the hurdles arrive now, the challenge would be to get those individuals to come to an office space for mandated days. So, yeah, the opportunity has also created the challenge, if that makes yeah. sense, in, yeah. in yeah. the past couple of years of how the workplace looks like. And do you think that workplaces of the future are going to be hybrid? Well, I think because 
our industry, the communications industry as a whole in the UK have now got staff going in the office for two or three days mandated. I think the shuffle of staff between agencies might not be as extreme. So there's that. So hopefully it will stop the churn of people going and coming. But as a whole, I do think hybrid might be here for a while longer, but I don't know because now we're going into winter here and COVID might show its face again and and we might go backwards before we go forwards. So it's all a bit up in the air because obviously the home working or remote working and hybrid working were sort of forced on businesses because of COVID. And so we may have to come to a conclusion as a country at some point that it's sort of like a a seasonal thing rather than something set in stone. I I don't know. So you're talking about that the flu may come back and we may need to take similar sort of measures. Measures, yeah. Uh, And you're talking about seasonality. COVID did a lot of bad, but it also helped us to reimagine how we could live, work and play, as I say often. So what do you think is now the future of work for our industry, where you are looking at increasingly intergenerational workforces, you're looking at different cultures, you're looking at a lot of diversity, and you're looking at people who want different things from the workplace. And especially when you look at millennials, or you look at over 50s, where they are not willing to compromise unless they have a great pension, of course. Don't have a pension, let me say. Uh, They're not willing to compromise on certain aspects of what they hold dear. So what, according to you, would future of work look like? I mean, nobody can predict it, actually. It's evolving so fast. It's always changing. But maybe two or three things that you think... Um, I think there's a lot of prongs to this because... Some businesses may feel that they could not renew their lease on their premises and Mm -hmm. have some other form of office space, a WeWork type situation. But then I know the government have been actively encouraging people to come back to London, to keep London limited functioning. But so all the shops and the other businesses that are around there, but there's been an increase in footfall for the high street since people have been working from home. So it sort of swings and roundabouts and businesses, although they're independent and can do what they wish, there are some limitations. So for example, it took a long while for train companies to offer other seasonal train tickets because historically it's cheaper to buy a weekly ticket than a daily ticket on public transport but if people are only going to the office two or three days a week what does that mean and Mm -hmm. so there's lots of different tangents to this it's not simply just a business deciding they want to do x and it will be fine because we've also got to think about employees the cost of living there's so many different elements but I do feel there will be some businesses who will decide against having permanent premises. Yeah. And Marcia, do you believe that, again, if we talk about in a post-COVID world, purpose suddenly became something that everyone wanted to talk about, right? Do you believe that HR should drive purpose and culture in an organization? 
or HR is well-placed to drive purpose and culture in an organization? Well, they need to be working with the C-suite of businesses, but HR, yes, should definitely drive the purpose and culture of the organisation. There should be policies in place to ensure that the culture is diverse and the business has a purpose, definitely. Yeah. And what does that mean when organisations say they have an inclusive, equitable culture? What does that mean? And how does one go about creating it? Because it's not like... You mix a couple of ingredients and it is done. I think businesses need to be committed to an equitable culture because there's no point the C-suite or HR implementing an inclusive environment if those working with the diverse staff on a day-to-day basis are not aligned. So it's a really important thing to educate the current staff to make sure that they understand the direction the company is heading in and that they're bought into it. And so they see the benefit as well or understand what the benefit would be. So yeah, how do we go about creating it? We at four, we have a redacted CV process as one of our main strands. So somebody would apply for a a role and that CV is only seen by people within the HR team. And the CV is then redacted before it is shared with the hiring manager and only when the hiring manager says they want to see person x will they get the full cv so there's no preconceptions or unconscious bias at place if people see someone's name or where they were educated or what additional languages they may speak or what additional countries they may have lived in so the hr team actively read the cvs and don't just carte blanche blank out information they read it if it's something that is needed and wanted obviously that is kept open but some information is actually redacted so we hope that that well it is helping us improve our diversity stats and you can see the improvement we can actively see the improvement before we started doing that we found that a certain group were very, very diverse. And that group were the central services team, which incorporate the finance, the IT, the HR, the office teams, reception, uh, because I generally interviewed those people. The client-facing teams, however, we were at a different percentage of diversity. So to improve that, we implemented the redacted CVs and we went from 14, 1.4% of diverse client-facing staff to 24% within a two-year period. Wow, that's good. Well done on that. So how important, (laughs) Marcia, are fair pay and representation for building an inclusive culture in order of priority? I think they're all of equal priority, to be honest, because they're all interlinked. You cannot have an inclusive culture without fair pay and representation. It just wouldn't happen. So they are all of equal priority and importance. I think that's quite clear to me anyway. And pay transparency. So we're not yet at a point where we need to publicly publish our ethnicity or a gender pay gap, but we have those figures. We're very strict on the pay brackets for job titles. And so if somebody is X job titled, their pay will be between A and B range. And that's quite clear. So yes, 
that's a good way to ensure that you're not just making decisions because you feel like it. Absolutely. We don't want to restrict the management, but we do want to give them particular boundaries to work within because it's human nature. They'll have favourites, they'll have this, they'll have that. But this helps us look at it with clear eyes and make sure that nothing silly is going on in the background. Yeah, that's true. Goal setting and measurement, how critical are they for the success again for culture change program? And would you have any examples of what success would look like? What goal are you setting at when you're talking about an inclusive culture or when you're talking about transparency or who you are as an organization? All of this is not like a one-time thing. It's something that you need to do continuously. So how do you measure and what is that goal that you are moving towards? Yeah, so because we are a business that has offices not just in London, but in the north of England and Wales and across the Middle East, we set each of the teams a different target for diversity. So that's a hard target that we've set them. We've also got soft target on gender because we're 60% female fundamentally. So where teams are lacking, they've got different targets to others. So we are quite strong on that. And we also implement the Rooney rule, which is an American thing where we would make sure that somebody diverse is in the top three or five candidates that people want to look at for roles, even if they haven't pre-selected them, we would ensure that they are in there. So we do things in the background to make this happen for us, but the teams themselves, all the directors of the teams know their targets and we have a company target on top of that. Marcy, it seems like a fairly simple thing that when you're doing something on DEI or DEIB, as you call it, it should be embedded within your business purpose and where you're going as a business. And if it is done separately because people are looking at you and sort of asking you what you're doing, you're likely to fail. Do you believe that you as an organization have done that? It's embedded within your business purpose and that it is aligned to your objective to be a profitable business, but an inclusive business. Yeah. I mean, the the fact that we've been awarded a B Corp status actually also proves this, but as a business, it definitely is embedded. We've got a very varied workforce in age and gender and disability and ethnicity. We've got a very, very varied workforce because in our industry, we believe we couldn't serve our clients rightly and correctly if we didn't have diverse staff. And so it is very important to us to to have that and to act on that. And an additional thing that we do at four is that rather than rely on recruitment agencies, we have a recruitment bonus for staff for recommending people for a role. So the recommender receives the money what I call free money, once the individual passes their probation and it's graded. So there's a different rate for recruiting just anyone to recruiting somebody over a certain job title to recruiting somebody who is diverse 
to recruiting somebody who used to work at the organization before. So we've got all this great and it's all the staff know about it and they're all super keen to get friends and family involved in that. And we're happy to do that as well. So Mm -hmm. there are lots of things that businesses can do to ensure that creating an inclusive culture. We also had earlier this year, our first recruitment day for people who were not graduates. So the one thing you couldn't be when you turned up to our recruitment day was a graduate. So we had an awful lot of school leavers, college leavers come to apply to join the day and attend the day. And they were all very, very, very strong. So socioeconomic uplift is another big, big stake in this. So we need to make sure. And I think if we actually focus on socioeconomic uplift, we cover basically all the other all the other yeah exactly because by default they tend to be in a lower socioeconomic group so these things are really important to for we run surveys on staff we ask staff their opinion on things we ask staff to self-identify and self-state their status as as socioeconomic uplift for example so we do lots of things in the background so we do feel it is embedded in our culture at four definitely Yeah, that's very interesting things to hear and like really good ones. A question about the wider industry. We do have a problem in terms of representation in the C-suite level and leadership teams of the global majority. How can we increase that? Or is there something innovative that we can do as an industry to change that? Because this is an issue about the pipeline, the broken rung, and you cannot make that change happen immediately unless you have a very transformative plan in place. What are your thoughts? Well, I think businesses need to look at transferable skills and alternative work patterns as a bare minimum to ensure that there isn't a five or 10 year wait between the people that they're getting in through the door now to break through that glass ceiling to leadership. We need to ensure that we're being fair to people because if we're just hiring diverse people of the bottom rung, as it were, ethnicity pay gap will be completely out of whack because all the people on the lowest salary will be diverse people. So we need to look at this differently. And I think as a bare minimum, transferable skills and alternative work patterns are two things that businesses can look at to get people in who are diverse at a more senior level. Yeah, that's an amazing point that you've made. And I've heard Barbara talk about it also quite a few times. It's very interesting that we are aligned on that thinking. Let's get the industry together for that. Moving on, what is the elephant in the room for you, Marcia? Oh, my goodness. I think, if I'm honest, it's working with people who have little or no interest in attending a physical office space. (laughs) We are now in a position where many people have been educated during lockdown and therefore see no need to learn through osmosis. And many of these people, unfortunately, lack social cues and have limited ability to speak with others face to face, which is an issue for all industries, particularly the communications industry. So we need to somehow come to a middle ground 
But yeah, I think that is my elephant in the room today. Wow. I love the use of the word osmosis because, yeah, it's such a powerful word. And I agree. There are whole generations of people who've just done online. And while it works for some people, I think for some people, it'll just put them in a cage and maybe they're not happy with it, but they don't know how to get out of that place. So we definitely need to think about how to engage them. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And that's not to say the old way of working was absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we need to somehow find a middle ground because some of these people don't understand that they're missing something because yeah. it's never been there. Yeah, so they don't yeah. know it's missing. And you know, you still have rest of life other than work where people's skills are essential, uh, where you know how to interact, engage or say no or say yes. Absolutely. But we've got a generation who just use their telephone for <laughs> yeah. interactions. So it's a larger problem than our company or industry. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, complete the sentence, I believe in. I believe in absolute equality for all. Brilliant. Yes, that's a wonderful way to end our conversation today, Marcia. Uh, I really enjoyed speaking with you and understanding your perspective from an HR perspective, actually, on what the challenges, what the opportunities, and of course, hearing about the elephant in the room, because not many people speak about it. They speak about it behind the doors and amongst each other. It's really good to talk to you about all of this today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Honestly, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.